Eating Smoke by Chris Thrall. The true story of one man's descent into drug psychosis in Hong Kong's triad heartland. Read by Nicholas Atkinson. Part 3. I awoke on my bamboo bunk at 6.30pm. Plenty of time to get myself up, washed and boots polished like a good marine. But there was no way on God's green earth I could turn up at Nemo's in this state. Whenever I went to Happy Valley, Mac always had a silver chute laid out with a generous offering of his own crystal. He smoked it through a water pipe, which added to the ceremony. Only on this occasion, I smoked too much, and after borrowing a pair of clean socks, I left for work in overdose mode. Walking along Wong Nai Chung Road, I bumped into Jason on his way to the club. Hi, Chris, he said, a big smile, and then doing a double take asked, Are you okay? Uh, no, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit ill. Take the night off, he said reassuringly. I'll tell Paul you're sick. Thanks, Jace, I replied, sloping off sideways like the town drunk, feeling seven shades of idiot. I arrived at Nemo's the next evening, only to find another Westerner on the door wearing a club sweatshirt, a short, skinny guy with a frizzy blonde ponytail. You must be Chris, he said with a clipped South African accent. Yeah, and you are? I'm Drick. Drick? Hendrik. I work at the Pink Panther, but Paul asked me to help you out for a few nights. Because of what happened with the girl? Yeah, you screwed up. Inside, I apologised to the Dilo for not coming to work the night before. It's okay, he said, and I knew to say no more. In the morning, walking back to my apartment through the glorious sunshine and bustle, I felt full of the joys of the Hong Kong spring. I was pleased. My Hong Kong adventure was at last going smoothly. Proud of my job and of building up my Guan Chi in Wan Chai. I said hello to my newest friend, the dry cleaning man, who stood behind the counter in his open front shop, a block from my home. He reciprocated with a beam and a, How are you? Yeah. Everything was going well. I lived in Wan Chai's filthy back streets. I got a kick out of working in this environment, with tough-nut Hong Kong workmates surrounding me. I loved the richness of this culture, its people, customs, etiquette, superstition and pride, their ancient fighting skills and cuisine. But strangest of all, I started to dislike the foreign devils. Not my friends, but the ones gallivanting around as if they owned the place. The following week, Jason had said, there's trouble with one of the guaylos. An English bloke stood smashing glasses against the bar. I told him the score, but when he ignored me, I asked him to leave. He braced up to me with the, you can't tell me what to do routine. So I pushed him full force in the chest, then pinned his arms behind his back and ran him out of the club. Came that bizarre shout down the stairs of the club again as I sat behind the lectern, enjoying a busy evening. I've been hearing it for days, both in English and Chinese accents. I knew what it meant, but why people were shouting it at me, I had no idea. I looked up to see Craig, my DJ friend from the Big Apple, appearing in silhouette against the moonlight. <clears throat> he coughed. Got a cold, mate? I joked. Uh, no, he replied, scowling. 
What brings you over from the apple, Craig? I've come to sell some bags, mate, he said, then chuckled as he went inside. Bags? I pondered. What was he doing selling drugs in here? Drick was back on the door the next night. Our relationship fractures at best. He'd say things like, So, do you see it yet, Chris? I looked to him as the guy with the answers I needed to gain admission into this secretive domain. But no one would simply throw open the door and say, Hey, Chris, come and join the party. No. It was up to me to put the jigsaw puzzle together. And when the last piece fell into place, I would see this thing as clear as day and earn a place of respect in the underworld. Whenever I asked Drick a question, such as, How should I be doing this? Or, Is it good to wear trainers? You know, like, white ones. His reply would be curt and indifferent. If you like. Whatever. Which made me feel I was on the right lines, but never actually got me anywhere. And then the crunch came. Everyone knows you take drugs, Chris, he said, as I stood by the door, trying not to look as though I took drugs. I like a drink, Chris, he continued, but not before work. Right, I replied, wishing it were that easy with crystal meth. The following day, I left work in melancholy mode. So I took drugs. Whoopee flippin' do. Half the planet did in some form or another. I didn't wake up one day and think, ah, that's what I'll do. I'll leave a good career in the armed forces, go out to Hong Kong and get messed up. In fact, I'll piss off the nicest bloke I ever met, lose 50 frickin' jobs and girlfriends and ruin my health. Result! Have you got it yet? Asked Drick. It's not that difficult, Chris. Then, bingo. I had my breakthrough. It was all in the cough. When a customer approached, a regular customer, they raised a hand to their mouth and let out a small but distinct cough. Drick then reciprocated. It was so simple. When Drick went into the bar, I put my knowledge to the test. The next guy down the stairs was a scrawny Marjai. As he drew near, <clears throat> it came out. <clears throat> I responded. Smiling as I did, he put his wild eyes close up to mine, grinning and said, Very cool. Then he went to go inside, only he stopped in the doorway, turned and whispered, Siking yakun ho lok, and laughed. I was determined to figure out the symbolism behind eating smoke and can of coke. So, have you got it figured out yet? asked Drick. Suddenly, I had. They were hand signs. The next couple were a guy and a girl. Upon seeing Drick and me, they adopted a ring shape with one hand and two pointed fingers with the other. Drick returned the gesture before raising a hand and giving a discreet cough. Later that evening, Johnny Horsepower arrived. I felt a kinship with him. We were both desperados. I told him I would meet him in the park at seven in the morning. His eyes lit up and he looked at me cow-like for several seconds. Then off he went. Back at my place the next morning, I wanted to dive into the culture shock Hong Kong guidebook, determined to work out this whole thing. I thumbed to the section headed, The Triads. Bank and jewellery shop robbers in Hong Kong used to wield a chopping knife. Today, triad members threaten their victims with handguns and grenades. What shape do your hands make when you're holding a gun and a grenade? Smoking a cigarette, holding a can of Coke. 
The answer had been there all along, right in front of my eyes. The next evening, the club was filling. Technopop blared through the bar with the disco lights in tow. You're going to get it now, said Drick as he joined me on the stairwell. What the f... What are you talking about? Do you remember borrowing a hundred bucks off Alex and not bothering to pay it back? He said with a head shake. Drick, you know sod all about it. I paid it back the next day out of the advance. What about the time you told Chi Chu Johnny takes drugs? I didn't tell him he takes drugs. I asked him if he did, trying to get a feel for the customers like a doorman's supposed to. I could see now where all this was over, where it was all heading. Expats and Chinese flooded into the club, loathing in their stairs. Drick put the final nail in my coffin. End. Who were you supposed to meet in the park this morning? As he looked at me, contempt radiating through his narrow eyes, my situation slammed home. Johnny Horsepower. I'd forgotten all about him. You bloody idiot, Thoreau. I was gutted to think of the poor bloke, sitting waiting for his mate Chris to come along as promised. Drick came back out. So, are you scared? He asked. Have I missed something? Don't worry, I'll take care of you if you're scared, I replied. Then, slapping his pint-sized head, I walked into the bar area, impervious of the thirty sets of eyes throwing daggers at me. Nah, this entire thing had been a setup to see me flash yellow and wrap myself around the nearest copper so they could all have a good laugh. I stood there, gazing around and laughing at them, at least on the inside. Fricking gangsters with their expat cronies and ridiculous bloody coughs. Then, giving them a grim to take to the bank, I did a Michael Jackson spin in time to the music and danced the jig of my life. Come 4am, the punters had thinned out, the thugs and their guilo bedfellows too. Paul Eng came over to say I could go home. Walking along Jaffa Road, I noticed a sleek black Mercedes pull away from the curb and begin to stalk me. I ducked into one of the dirty grey buildings and shot up the back stairs. After several attempts of smashing through the ageing exit door, I found myself on the roof, desperate for a place to hide and fumbling in the leather pouch around my waist for the mini mag light and chain. They may be coming with meat cleavers, but it wouldn't faze me. Not much does when you're a mental ex-marine flying high on ice. Still, a hiding place might prove worthwhile. Scanning around, I spied a utility shaft. I grabbed the rusting ladder, but only got a foot on one rung before slipping, falling headlong into the darkness and, oh, landing on some god-awful mess below. I felt hair and smelt a stench that was more than just rancid. I clicked on the maglite. It was a woman and a baby. Her face, what was left of it, still contorted with fear after the chopper sliced her from crown to ear. The little boy was on his back, draped across her midriff, eyes gently closed and mouth slightly ajar, as if in peaceful sleep. His tiny belly wasn't so composed. Through a single slash, a rainbow of entrails spilled out, Bodies or no bodies, I would lie low until the danger passed. I could sit in the darkness next to two corpses and say, Sodom. Sodom all. I awoke late. Something awful happened last night, and not just the crap that went down at the club. I hopped down from my bamboo bunk, landing unsteady on my feet. Lighting a smoke, 
I noticed a photo on the page of an old newspaper on the floor. No. Mercedes. Choppers. Woman. Baby. The horror consumed me. My bedtime reading had been the news of a particularly savage triad attack. A woman and a baby hacked to pieces and dumped in a shaft on a rooftop. I fought to calm myself, to work out how this had something to do with me. Did I cause this? I checked the date on the paper. Thank God. It was May 15th, 1995. Three days before I had arrived in Hong Kong. The bodies had been a figment of my fractured subconscious. My life had descended into such drug-warped chaos that reality and fantasy had blurred. I wasn't going to be the laughing stock of this town. If I was going to get the regard back that I'd once been so proud of, then I had to knock the meth on the head. With my stash now gone, I climbed back up onto my bed, pulled the blanket across my midriff and, wondering how I would cope with my new resolution, drifted off to sleep. Getting up for work on Monday hadn't been too bad after almost 36 hours sleep. Yet when I arrived at the club, the tiredness began to roundhouse me. Yawning incessantly, I had to go into the back room to try and sort it out. Despite my intentions, my body couldn't handle it. I must have been there for a couple of hours, my head rolling around, when Sydney entered. He said, Ah, uh, quiz, huh? The boss say, uh, here is $3,000. He say you don't need to work here anymore. Sure, Sid. I replied. When morning broke, it wasn't only sunlight pouring through the window, filling my life with light. It was something inside. I had lost almost everything, but most of all, the chance to claw back some self-respect and show the doubters I wasn't anyone's fool and could work this thing out. There was only one option left. It was time to go and jump off one of the 40-metre-high cranes into the harbour. That would do the trick. Ultimate confidence in one's own ability and much more belief than that lot had put together. After a smoke from my dwindling stash, I set out with a newfound contentment. It wasn't a bad old day for it either. And as I strolled through Wan Chai, heading in the general direction of the tall cranes, the warming rays complemented my sense of purpose. I walked right the way along Jaffa Road, swapped over to Harcourt Road, and passed by the gates of HMS Tamar, the naval base I stayed at when I arrived here all those months ago. I walked further through the back streets of Western District, the buildings getting older and greyer, the roads narrower and emptier, the sky more overcast and threatening. Although feeling lonely, I knew I had to press on. Looking down an alleyway, I saw it led to a courtyard surrounded by housing blocks. Two boys were playing football, taking it in turns to stand in a small goal they had set up. I went inside. One of them passed me the ball, and as we took it in turns to shoot and save penalties, it felt great to have uncomplicated company. I walked right through the morning and into the afternoon, finding myself at the far end of the island seafront in a place called Kennedy Town. Not having seen a crane, let alone jumped off one, I sat down on the harbour wall and tried to get my bearings. 
I turned back towards the city centre, feeling despondent my mission hadn't come to much, only adding to my confusion if I was honest. I went into a petrol station. I knew how to show the critics my worth and integrity. I went up to the counter and shoved my cash into the charity box. Every last note and coin went in. As the female shop assistant stood there smiling and saying, Dolce! Dolce! I left feeling I'd shown my true colours. And if they still insisted on hating me, well, what else could I do? I'd spent all I could in every sense of the word. I exited the lift to find my floor bathed in the moon's enigmatic glow. After smoking some ice, I made my way back out to the landing. Someone in the building across the road shouted something about the guaylo. When I looked over, I saw the fat lady again, or at least her silhouette behind the frosted glass. Not a hairbrush in her hand, but most definitely a microphone. It was all starting to make sense. I rushed back to my room, delved into my briefcase, searching for a letter I'd kept in there. A special letter, sent to me by my second cousin, Paul. Paul had joined the Marines as a junior, rising to the rank of colonel. When it's 2am and you're walking across Dartmoor in the rain, you'll really wonder why you joined, but I promise you it's all for a reason and will all make sense in the end. I suddenly realised that Paul was referring to the commando crawl, the technique of edging your stomach along a rope suspended between two high points. It wasn't so we could board an enemy ship by stealing up the mooring lines. It was so I could shin across the wire to the building on the other side of Jaffa Road. It was so simple. This whole thing is not over until the fat lady sings. Now I knew the reason why I'd come to Hong Kong. I had to prove it to the bastards who doubted me, the bloody disbelievers who dared question my integrity and blatantly laughed at me. I would show them. I would show them all. Right now. I went up to the roof, peering over the edge, to look down into the roof-dweller's patio. I could see the wire with the pipe attached to it, secured to the parapet and shooting out into the night to fix onto another metal ring on the fat lady's balcony right outside the room where she continued her operatic performance. As quietly as possible, I dropped the eight feet down. Then I climbed up to sit aside the parapet, reflecting on my commando training. Laying my body onto the wire, I felt excited, knowing that when I got to the other side, the mystery would be over, my worth shown, and this whole Hong Kong escapade done and dusted, in the bag, I began to shin along it, wincing as the plastic ties, every twelve inches, scratched wickedly at my chest through the fabric of my T-shirt. A few feet out, I stopped. Will this wire take my weight? I haven't checked it for safety. Come on, Marine. The hand of the Almighty reached down out of the heavens to slap some sense into my dumb, blinkered self. I suddenly realised what a fool I'd been. What the hell was I doing? I didn't care for this stupid cult gangster crap. As far as I was concerned, they were a bunch of misfitting cowards. Pathetic, spineless, crap bags who got their kicks from humiliating people and setting them up to be murdered. I didn't have to prove a single bloody thing to those bastards. I didn't have to prove anything to anyone in this world except my little brother 
and my family and my friends back home, the ones who genuinely cared for me. How would it be if my brother Ben had to hear the news that I'd become a drug addict in Hong Kong and had thrown myself off a skyscraper? Because that's how they'd report my death. A pathetic suicide by a drugged-up loser. No bloody way. I didn't have to prove anything to anyone. Only him. It all seemed so clear. I'd come out to Hong Kong a determined, driven man. But now look at me. I climbed off the cable and headed back to my room. This time by the direct route, straight through the exit that the roof-dweller had wedged shut. He could go to hell as well. I was angry now. I hadn't asked for this. Okay, maybe I took the meth. Although in truth, those crafty little crystals chose me. Made me feel normal for the first time in my life. The person I wanted to be. Better than having ridiculously big muscles and ego-fueled cars. But either way, I didn't deserve to end up like this. In this undignified state. In this... 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 Killing house. This killing house. Oh! Smash the mirror from the junk room and crash went Chris Theroux down amongst the broken glass and other crap strewn across the pitiful mess of a floor. I didn't ask for this. I bloody didn't ask for this. This. No. 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 Sitting there. Amongst the carnage for the first time in a year missing my family, and unable to stop the tears of self-pity flooding down my cheeks, I must have forgotten to lock the front door, because the policeman walked straight in. What you do? He shouted, scanning the mess and appearing angry and bewildered. I am... I'm... I'm having a bit of trouble dealing with things, officer. Don't do the drug! He shook his head more mournfully than scornfully, then about turned and left me to my chaos. In the morning, there was a knock on my door. Quiz, you'll have to go now. I know, mate. The time had come. Not only had I gone a little over the top with the restructuring of the place and waged psychological warfare on the neighbours, but I couldn't pay the rent. I packed my bergen grabbed the fake leather hold-all out of the junk room to carry all the books, and then went back and stashed my boogie box in the clutter, as it was too much to carry. Goodbye, Chris. Goodbye, mate, I said, and then headed out to phone Max. Max, <laughs> I, I need your help, mate. I, I need somewhere to stay. No problem, Chris, he said. The following evening, I borrowed a few bucks from Max and hopped on one of the flying, triad-operated minibuses, passing his place in the direction of Wan Chai. For the first time ever, I sat alone in the club, not dancing or talking to anyone. I couldn't relax. I looked over to Chan. He was chatting to Ray's new Chinese barman and laughing, and I knew it was about me. The humiliation was more than I could bear. When one of the expats came over and asked if I was all right and why was I sitting on my own, I reckoned everyone in the club must have been having a good old giggle too. No, I'm not, I said, and then got up and walked out.
but it didn't end there. Jumping aboard a packed minibus to go back to Max's, I came under attack again. Battered by a cacophony of Cantonese from people I'd never met before, I sat with my head down until I couldn't bear it any longer. So I got off the bus miles from Quarry Bay and started walking. The roads at this late hour were near deserted. The sodium-yellow glow of the streetlights reflecting off the tarmac glistened from a recent rain shower to add a barren and sinister mood. Scanning around, I saw people, standing in bus stops and sat outside restaurants, all engaged in snipping conversations about me. But as I neared, the scenes blended into lights, shadows and objects, only to come to life elsewhere and the gossiping continue. I arrived back at Max's in a right old state. Max, they're all talking about me, mate. Who talking about you? Everyone, Max. Even people I can't see. No, Quissa. No one talk about you. You take too much drug. Max didn't understand, and I couldn't take it any more. I asked if I could phone my old man. Hi, Dad, I said. It's all gone wrong here, I'm afraid. Um, how do you know? My friend up the pub. He was a police officer in Hong Kong. He called his old mates and asked if they knew you. <laughs> what did they say? They said, everyone knows your friend's son. Listen, I've got an idea. What's that? I asked, as I'd long since run out of ones that worked. But Dad, a ticket from Hong Kong is about 900 quid. Don't worry about that. I can put it on the card, can't I? Listen, give me this number. When the telephone rang half an hour later, and he said, Look, son, how about you go to the airport tomorrow and take the 5pm Virgin Atlantic flight to Heathrow, and I'll be there to meet you. It suddenly seemed my only option. Only for a short time, though, just to get myself sorted. But before I did... There were some things I had to do. It was a Sunday morning in the Big Apple. Ray stood behind the bar, looking relaxed and serving drinks to a few expats sat around. I'm off home, guys. Only for a while, though, just to get myself sorted, you know. I think they're a good idea, Chris, said Ray, ever the kind man he'd been during my time here. As I walked out of the Apple, a chorus of good wishes caught me up. I turned and said, Guys! I'm not going home because I'm a drug addict, you know. I'm just sick of getting crushed on the MTR. For some reason it didn't get a laugh. So feeling foolish, I continued up the stairs. Max was at home chatting to Jackson. We smoked some ice, and after I'd packed and slid a packet of crystals into the lining of my boot to help me carry my Bergen, brief bag and case, and smelly bag of books to the MTR, offering to accompany me to the airport. The jumbo jet stood alone on the tarmac at Kai Tak. Engines warmed, its wing and tail lights flashing expectantly. I stopped halfway up the steps, turning for a final look out over the apron to see Hong Kong. It was my Hong Kong, and I had to say goodbye before getting on the plane. On that warm, clear evening, the 23rd of June, 1996, 
I gazed at the awe-inspiring, shimmering-in-the-dark, neon-highlighted, skyscraping bloody wonderment, the incredibleness of which had been my extraordinary home for thirteen months, and as I turned to walk up the last few steps, I knew I would return to the fragrant harbour. I've never been back. Dream.